Good morning. You know, the Apostle Paul said to speak the truth in love. That means the next time Ben asks if you want to hear some jokes, the answer is no. <laughs> We're very thankful today that uh, you are here, especially um, thankful today and rejoicing with uh, Ben and his family. Uh, his uh, sister Carrie is visiting with us today um, from Tennessee, and after our Bible classes, she's going to be baptized into Christ. And um, we are so delighted about that and uh, rejoicing with them and look forward to uh, celebrating those, uh, those moments with them. <clears throat> we started last Sunday talking about love for a few weeks, about marriage. And uh, so we're carrying that on today. Uh, I heard not long ago about a, a couple celebrating their 75th wedding anniversary. And as they were at the celebration, sitting side by side, the, the man turned and looked lovingly at his wife, and he said, after 75 years, I've always found you to be tried and true. She didn't hear very well, and she kind of clouded up, and she said, what did you say? So he said it a little louder, after 75 years, I've always found you to be tried and true. Then she got a real scowl on her face, and she said, well, I'll tell you something. After 75 years, I'm kind of tired of you, too. <laughs> Now, on the other end of the marital spectrum was the newlyweds who were sitting down to their very first meal as husband and wife, and she was just learning to cook, and, and as they sat down, she smiled lovingly at him, and she said, in, in honor of our, our first meal together as husband and wife, I prepared two of your favorite dishes, meatloaf and banana pudding. And he said, sweetheart, that's so nice. And he looked down at his plate and he said, which one is this? <laughs> marriage can be hard. We said last week that marriage always requires effort. It always does. Sometimes a lot of effort. And we might wonder, why is that the case? Why is it so hard? Why does it have to be so hard? If God created marriage and it is his gift to us, as we saw in Genesis last week, if that's the case, why does it have to be so hard? And the answer is so simple. The answer is because we are all sinners. Marriages differ, but in one respect, all marriages are exactly alike. All marriages are made up of two sinners. And because we are all sinners, then that makes it difficult. That makes it hard. Even with the best of intentions, we don't always do the things that we should. We don't always say the things that we should. And that means there are no perfect marriages. There are good marriages. There are strong marriages. But there are no perfect marriages, and there never will be on this earth. Kent Crockett speculates, what if everyone in the world were just alike? And what if everyone was just like you? That means if you got married, then you'd be marrying somebody just like you. Now, on the surface, that might sound like a great thing. You know, be somebody just like me. Have the same outlook, same interests, the same <clears throat> taste, the same opinions about everything, the same attitudes. But would that be a perfect marriage? Do you suppose you'd ever argue with yourself? 
do you suppose that you would still both want that last piece of pie? Do you suppose that uh, neither of you wanted to take out the trash and what you would do? What if both of you were in a bad mood? You see, even if you were married to you, it still wouldn't be a perfect marriage. Because, again, there would still be sin and there would still be selfishness and marriage would still be about two sinners. Now, Genesis 3 explains how it got that way. We looked last week at chapter 2, especially verses 23 to 25, and it shows how it was in the beginning, how beautiful it was, how, how God saw that it was not good for the man to be alone, and so he made the woman for him and brought her to the man, and he said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And, and the beautiful statement that therefore a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh, and that statement in verse 25 that they were both naked and they were not ashamed. They had nothing to be ashamed about. And, and they were just at ease with each other and they were at ease with God. And everything was, everything was just like it was supposed to be, just like God intended for it to be. And then in chapter 3 and verse 1, enter the serpent. Now we don't find this out till later in the Bible, but the serpent is Satan. Satan comes to do what? He comes to wreck the good creation that God has made he is a destroyer and so he comes to destroy what God has made and so he starts he starts with the only two of God's creatures who have the capacity to rebel against God he starts with the man and the woman because they are the only ones that God has created who can possibly rebel against him and so he causes Eve to doubt God's goodness. And then she violated the only negative command that God had given them. And then Adam joined her in sin. And from that moment until today, all of creation has been messed up. And what's really been messed up as a result of all that is relationships. Relationships are messed up because of the presence of sin in the world. Look what happens to the relationship between Adam and Eve and God, where they were once comfortable in his presence, where they once were uh, thankful to be uh, with him and to be around him. They now find themselves ashamed. And when Adam hears the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, he hides. He hides because he's ashamed. And then there's the relationship between the man and the woman. God asked the man, what have you done? And you know the answer to that, don't you? The woman. But not only that, he says, the woman you gave me. He blames the woman and blames God for giving her to him. And then he turns to her and what have you done? And she blames the snake. And it's just been that way ever since, hasn't it? And there have been two, two characteristics of human relationships ever since then. And those are hiding and blaming. Hiding and blaming. And that's what makes marriages so difficult as well as other human relationships. Hiding is kind of an automatic reaction. We do it with God and we do it with one another. I don't want you to see how vulnerable I am. I don't want you to see how weak I am. I don't want you to see how guilty I am. I don't want you to see how frail I am. So I hide from you. And then when something goes wrong... We point the finger at someone else 
rather than admit simply that I messed up. And when this happens in marriages, it can become a habit, this hiding and this blaming, this failure to communicate openly with one another and to blame one another for all the problems. And then it, it just infects the marriage until it becomes uh, very, very difficult at best. I remember a couple who came years ago for, for counseling and I didn't know them very well, and I didn't know what the problem was. They sat down on the sofa in my office, and I, I said, well, I'd like for each of you to tell me, what do you think is the basic problem between you? And without uttering a word, she went like that. <laughs> and he didn't say anything. Blaming and hiding. Blaming and hiding. That marriage did not survive. What's needed is the understanding that if I want to improve my marriage, I have to start with me. I can't start with my wife. I have to start with me. It's not my job to point out my wife's failings. It's my job to look at my own and work on me. It's a common mistake trying to change the other person. And there are two, two problems with that. The biggest one is, number one, you can't do it. You can't do it. The only person whose behavior, attitudes, actions you can control is you. And that's why it's important to work on you. The other problem is it's not your job. It's God's job. If God wants your spouse to be changed, then you need to pray about that and pray that that change will come about. Because God is in the business of changing people. You cannot do it. He's the only one who can. And until he does, and if he does, because he may not, they may be resistant. If they do not change, work on yourself. Work on yourself. That's the only thing that you can do. Now, nowhere in Scripture is this made so clear as it is in Ephesians 5, verses 21 to 33. And I hope you'll have your Bible open in front of you uh, as, you're, as you're looking at this and as we talk about this text. Ephesians 5, verses 21 to 33. It's part of what scholars call a household code. A household code is something we find frequently in the New Testament. It was common in the ancient world where a, a teacher or a writer would list the responsibilities of very pe various people in a household. And in the case of Ephesians, of course, it's the responsibilities of all of those in the Christian household. The husband, the wife, the, the parents, the children, even masters and their servants because they were part of the household they were part of the family and what becomes so clear as you read Ephesians 5 21 to 33 is that everybody has responsibilities nobody gets a free ride it's never just one person's job to shoulder the load everybody has a load to bear and so that's what Paul says uh, in these uh, in this uh, particular text. And so if you're going to have a good home, a good marriage, a good, good family life, you've got to have everybody shouldering their responsibility. Now, in looking at this, I'm going to say what I always do when I talk about this text and others like it. Read your own mail. Read your own mail. What we enjoy doing sometimes with a text like this is we say, okay, that's the, the men are reading it and saying, that's the one that tells my wife that I'm the head. Or the wife is reading it and she's saying, that's the one that tells him to love me as Christ loved the church. Don't read it like that. Paul did not say, husbands, make sure that your wives 
or wives, you be sure and tell your husbands. To, he says, here's what you do. So read your own mail. See what he's saying to you, and you take care of you, and God will take care of your spouse. But I want you to notice, first of all, <clears throat> verse 21. A lot of times the reading starts with verse 22, and I don't think it should. Because verse 21 is kind of the umbrella verse that covers everything that follows it. Verse 21 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, and then says, wives, submit your husbands, husbands love your wives, and so forth. But the first statement is that everybody, everybody is supposed to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Before Paul says a word directly to wives or directly to husbands or directly to children or servants or masters, he says to everybody, everybody, submit to one another. Now, what does that mean? How do you in a family all submit to one another? And here's what it means. It means that each person's business is to give to the other what they most need from you. That's what it means to submit. It means to give to the other person what they most need from you. Why is that the definition of that? Because look what he says. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And what did Christ do? He gave you and he gave me exactly what we needed. He didn't give us what he necessarily wanted. He didn't give us what was easiest for him. He gave us what we had to have. He gave us his own life. And now Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Do that for each other. Submit yourselves to each other. Then starting in verse 22, he does speak directly to the wives and he says, submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. And then further down in verse 33, he says, let the wife see that she respect her husband. So this submission to the husband in the case of the wife looks like respect. It looks like respect for her, her husband. Now, let me clarify something here. As to the Lord does not mean that he's God. All right? He may think he is on some days uh, or act like he is at some time, but he's not. All right? You know that. He knows that. Does not mean that he's God, but it means to give the same kind of submission to him as a Christian gives to Christ because of what Christ has done for us we love why because he first loved us and so we give that loving submission to him we give that respect to him and that's what Paul is telling wives to do now why does submission for a wife look like respect and the answer I think is because it's one of the greatest needs that men have later we're going to talk about the fact that men and women are so much alike in so many ways, and yet we're so different. But we are so much alike in so many ways, and yet so different. But one of the ways that men differ from women, and this is not exclusive, I'm not saying that women don't have this need at all, but men seem to have it more, is the need for respect. The need to feel adequate. You know, it starts when we're kids. We begin to wonder, particularly in adolescence, Am I good-looking? Am I smart? Can I make the team? 
Can I keep up with the other kids? Do I fit in? Am I like them? Uh, uh, you know, am I accepted to them? And, and all those other things. And then it continues on into adulthood. You know, we sometimes talk about adolescent behavior. You know what, why a lot of that adolescent behavior happens, especially among little boys? They're trying to prove themselves. They're trying to find themselves. They're trying to show themselves to be worthy, <clears throat> to be, <clears throat> excuse me, all the things that they <clears throat> need to be. But it continues into adulthood when a man begins to ask, can I be a, can I be a good husband? Can I be a good father? Can I be a good provider for my family? Can I lead my family? Do I know how to do that? Am I able to do that? And what your husband needs from you, ladies, what he needs from you is for you to say, yes, you are capable, you are adequate. I believe in you. I trust in you. I married you because I believe in you and trust in you. What he doesn't need is reminders of his failures and of his weaknesses. He needs you to affirm him. And if not, you may continue to see an adolescent in behavior. Well, that's what he really needs is respect. But then Paul turns his attention to husbands beginning in verse 25 and going through 31. And he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her. You know, people ask sometimes, can love be commanded? And the answer is yes. Paul's doing it here. Love can be commanded because love is not so much an emotion as it is a decision to do what other people need. Love is not an emotion. It is a decision to do what other people need. And so Paul can say, husbands, love your wives. And so if for a woman, submission looks like respect, for a man, submission looks like self-sacrificing love. That's how husbands submit to their wives, is by loving them as Christ loved the church and gave himself, gave himself for her, that he might cleanse her and present her to himself as a bride without blemish or spot. Now, be sure of this, <clears throat> the Bible does, the Bible does teach male leadership in the family. There's no question about that. There's been a lot of debate about that over the years, <clears throat> and, and some have tried to say, no, it doesn't teach that. Yes, it does. It does teach that. But that doesn't mean, that male headship does not mean I always get my way. It does not mean that all the decisions are mine. It gets defined that way sometimes, and that's what people think it means, but that's not what it means. That kind of headship means being like Christ, Paul says. It means being like Christ. It means giving yourself up for her. Husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies, Paul says. For no man ever hates his body, but he nourishes and cherishes it. That's what we ought to do with our wives. We ought to nourish, cherish, care for, love, protect, do all of the things that we can do to demonstrate the self-giving love of Christ. Why, why this kind of self-giving love? Why is that the, the one thing that Paul zeroes in? Think of all the things Paul could have zeroed in for men. Why does he zero in on that? And here's the thing, because if, if your wife is going to submit herself to you and to your headship and to your leadership, 
She needs to be able to be sure that that submission is going to be met with a self-sacrificing love, not with abuse, not with taking advantage of it, not with lording it over her, but with loving her as Christ loved the church. And when she knows that, then the marriage will absolutely be transformed. Headship means being like Christ, giving yourself up for her. If your wife finds it hard to submit to you and to your leadership, it may be because she has not seen in you the self-giving love of Christ. When she sees the self-giving love of Christ in you, things will be different. Then in verse 31, Paul quotes Genesis 2.24. I mentioned to you last week that Genesis 2.24 is the foundational verse on marriage in the entire Bible. Therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and holds fast to his wife, and they become one flesh. And so Paul quotes that, but then he kind of puts a twist on it we didn't expect in verse 25, uh, 35. He says, I'm saying that this is about Christ in the church. It's about Christ in the church. That leaving and that being joined together, that becoming one, that's about Christ in the church, Paul says. But then he adds, but also, I'm also saying that a husband should love his wife and the wife see that she respect her husband. So they reflect one another. Think of the beauty and the power of that image when you think about marriage. The relationship between Christ and the church, the self-sacrificing Lord, and the grateful, loving, submitting body of Christ. Now, with that thought in mind, let's go back to Genesis 3. We are still sinners, still living in a fallen world, a world of difficult relationships. We are still prone to hiding and blaming and not accepting responsibility for our own mistakes. But through Christ, through Christ, we can rise above that fallen state of marriage. Through Christ, we can have relationships that are befitting of the kingdom of God. And that's what we're called to. We're not called to perpetuate Genesis 3.16. We're not called to perpetuate the tug of war. We're not called to perpetuate the, the striving for domination. We are called to rise above that and to reflect the beauty of Christ in the church. And we can. And when we do, then we can reflect a love between Christ and the church. And we can find the loving, respectful, supportive companionship that we all crave. But I want you to notice something very, very important in Ephesians 5. Paul is writing to followers of Jesus. He's not writing this to the world at large. He's not writing this to your unbelieving neighbor. He's not writing this to somebody across town who's never heard the gospel or across the world. He's writing it to people who believe in Christ and who have committed themselves to follow Christ, both of them. And when both of them have committed themselves to follow Christ and are following him, then they can put this in the context of the love relationship, put their marriage in the context of the love relationship between Christ and the church. So the place to start, the place to start is by following Jesus. The place to start 
is by striving to be more like him. The place to start is by giving your life to him. And that can start today for anybody who's ready to begin it. For anybody who believes that he's God's son and is ready to confess that and turn away from sin. For anybody who's ready and willing to be baptized into Jesus and be joined with him and have his spirit come and live within you to help transform you into a better husband, a better wife, a better person, but more importantly, a child of God. For anybody who's ready to do that, it can happen today. And we're praying that it will. You can just come and let us know and we'll walk you through it. Come and tell us while we stand to sing, please. Make me new.